1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 9th. 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Slate's Jim Newell to talk about weirdo golf villain Patrick Reed's triumph at the Masters. We'll also be joined by Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star to discuss the outpourings of grief in Canada after Friday's tragic bus crash in Humboldt, Saskatchewan that killed 10 junior hockey players and five adults. And the ringers Ben Lindbergh will come on the show to chat with us about Shohei Otani's remarkable first week and a half in the major leagues and other baseball happenings. Joining me here in Washington, D.C., mere blocks away from two 7 it's Stefan Fatsis, author of the 1998 Wall Street Journal article College Football, Sis Boom Blah Students Pass on Attending Games to Surf Net, Party, Watch TV, Bigger Crowds at the Circle K. Hello, Stefan.
2: Also, there were bigger crowds at the 7-Eleven.
1: I wanted to get in multiple convenience store brands at the top of the show. I don't want to play favorites. No.
2: Not that we're looking for new advertisers or anything.
1: That was a good story. My friend John Weinbach double bylined that with me. Good story. Yeah. On Sunday at Augusta National, the birds were chirping. The azaleas were blooming. Jim Nance was nancing all over the place. And pink-shirted anti-hero Patrick Reed held off charges from the well-liked Ricky Fowler and the also well-liked Jordan Spieth to win his first major championship. Slate's Jim Newell was there. And by there, I, of course, mean on his couch, lest he miss a second of the live stream of Tiger Woods botching three-foot putts. Jim, thank you for joining us in the studio today.
3: Happy to be here.
1: Uh, Patrick Reed didn't play great on Sunday, but he'd already built up a huge lead, and his main challenger, Rory McIlroy, totally stank. Uh, So shooting one under on Sunday was good enough for our man, Mr. Reed, to get the green jacket. But as Alan Shipnick wrote for Golf.com, the feeling around the 18th green when he won was subdued to the point of being awkward. This guy is not what you would call liked, much less well-liked. As Shane Ryan reported in his book, Slaying the Tiger, there are credible accusations that he cheated on the course and stole from his teammates when he played at the University of Georgia. After college, he's generally comported himself as a cocky a-hole, which I have no problem with because a golfer who wags his finger when he makes a putt is extremely funny. Yeah. What do you make of this Patrick Reed guy?
3: Well, first of all, you said he didn't play great. I actually take issue with that. I thought he played just he played smartly, which is he did what he needed to do. Which He was, was one under par. He was one under, and you'd see whenever someone got close to him, he would be able to make a birdie to hold them off, which is sort of how, I mean, I don't want to draw the crazy comparison here, but Tiger was able to do that too, make the birdie when necessary.
1: But Jim, I mean, this is a guy who throughout his career has taken tremendous pride in just grinding everyone into the dust. You know, you could argue that um, – he was playing smart golf. You could also just say he shot one under and was right. trying to shoot eight under.
3: Right. I mean, you could say that. I mean, as far as the the subdued clapping on the 18th, I mean, I certainly understood that because I was sitting on my couch not clapping for him, <laughs> as I usually do for most golfers when they're walking up 18. But, you know, you saw Jordan Spieth shoot a 64 that should have been a 63. Um, you saw... Ricky Fowler, who's never won a major but is one of the most popular guys out there. And so once it became clear that neither of those two was going to be able to get it over the top, then you just have the guy who was the overnight leader coming up to the 18th green. So yeah, it was sort of anticlimactic. But yeah, also, he's not, it's something weird about him where he is the biggest fan favorite in the Ryder Cup and in the President's Cup when you need him in these team competitions, but no one actually wants to see him win on his own.
2: Right. Because he is utterly unlikable, <laughs> right. based on his his past. Jim doesn't seem to agree with that, but we'll get
1: back we'll to, get Jim, back in to Jim in a
2: second. We don't care about Jim right now. Um, you mentioned the University of Georgia, Josh. He got kicked off the team after these incidents. I mean, it was for underage drinking. There were two episodes of that, so it wasn't necessarily... And he went to great lengths to defend himself and say, I didn't get kicked out of Georgia because I cheated or stole from my teammates. Well,
1: look, we've all been kicked out of the University of Georgia for underage drinking. That's, like, not notable. The things that have kind of tarred his reputation are the cheating at golf and the stealing from his teammates. And
2: being an asshole. I mean, he went to Augusta State and led the team to two... NCAA championships. I mean, this is a school that nobody has heard of outside of Augusta. Yeah, it's not really much. a powerhouse. Not a powerhouse. Um, and, and I think it was in Shane, one of Shane Ryan's pieces, he talked to a player on the Augusta State team going into the final match of the NCAAs who told Patrick Reed's opponent Look, we want to win the NCAA championship, but we also want you to kick the shit out of him on the course. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, I found it interesting when all this stuff was coming out about uh, Reed a few years ago from Shane and from uh, Stephanie Way and some other people that there would be a little bit of reporting about Patrick Reed not being liked by his college teammates, and then other college teammates would like reply to them on Twitter like, "Oh, I've got much more." So he really, <laughs> I mean, he really didn't, you know, seem to to. Uh, ingratiate himself with his fellow well, competitors. And, and
2: and the thing about that is that he's now 27, so he's four or five years out of college. Um, it doesn't seem like that much has changed in terms of, look, he's not cheating and he's not getting arrested for underage drinking because he's not underage <laughs> anymore. Um, but he, nobody on this tour is standing up and saying, I am thrilled for Patrick
1: Reed. Well, there are all these quotes from, like, other golfers on tour that Patrick Reed has described as his friend. And, like, these golfers get asked about him. They're like, I played a practice round with him once. I mean, I guess I'm not, like, his enemy. But he is just an incredibly weird dude. And the thing that I come back to is I described Rory McIlroy earlier as well-liked. Jim, you wrote a great review of the Tiger Woods book, which describes at length what an asshole Tiger is, and yet um, Rory, you know, Rory famously broke up uh, his engagement with Caroline Wozniacki like right. over the phone, which is like p- pretty dicky move. Like it's hard to get dickier than that. And yet these guys, Rory and and Tiger, and like a billion other athletes, have this kind of charisma where you just like want them to win, you root for them, and you even like them. And there's something about Patrick Reed even though in the Ryder Cup he's had these amazing moments and in the moment you had the crowds rooting for him where people just don't like him even when he wins. And it's just so rare in sports where usually if somebody wins, you just we just like them right. and not him.
3: Well, I, I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, whether you can back up as much as you talk. And there was, you know, the, the sort of famous incident in 2014 was when he won a... Uh, he wanted Doral, and he said, "I'm a top five player in the world." And he went through his whole college record, how great he was, <laughs> and it was just a, sort of a hilarious moment, in my opinion, from a you know 24 year old or something at the time. And you know, he hasn't he's been a very good player, but he hasn't you know he hasn't quite had the accomplishments that a Rory or a uh, Jordan Spieth or a Jason Day or anyone else in that similar cohort has had since then so it sort of makes him a little bit of a villain like oh he talks more than he can to match up but i don't know maybe that's going to change now
1: i mean his record in college is unbelievable and and in the Ryder Cup too like and Rory was trying to like play some like mind games which hilariously backfired on him by yeah. saying oh all the pressures on Patrick is like oh yeah Rory like sucked in that in the final round but this is his like first you know, Sunday in a major, up by three shots, and he won. And he's won every big match in college. He won every big match in these team events. I mean, you're saying that he does he, that he doesn't have the record of a Jordan Spieth or a Rory McElroy, which is true. But like this guy is like clutch, and he. It's not like he doesn't back it up, right? He does. He does back it up, and
2: th- I think the, what, the one thing we haven't stipulated is that in order to become an athlete that wins majors, that wins NBA championships, that wins gold medals. You have to be a supremely obsessive asshole. Yeah. You devote your entire life. And, and the stories of Patrick Reed's
1: childhood. Are you going to talk about the shorts? I'm not going to talk about the shorts. No, oh. the shorts is a good. You know the good, shorts good. thing, you know, Jim?
2: Did you read the shorts thing? I did not that, read that the that shorts That in playing thing. in youth
1: thing? tournaments,
2: he wouldn't wear shorts. The way all the other kids are wearing shorts in like ninety degree heat playing golf.
3: Yeah, starting at like ten years old. And he's
2: ten <laughs> years old because that PGA Tour players didn't wear shorts. Yeah, like at yeah. ten
1: years old, this guy is not.
2: And he's a shorts. he's a club club thrower and a screamer and a cursor. Um, sometimes, as he's Josh can tell us, he's still a cursor. You know, he's just not. Which a, I like and a loner.
3: I mean, not yeah. developing friendships with any fellow athletes in his sport. Well, he sort of, he has this sort of shell around him that makes it hard to really relate to him. I mean, Tiger Woods, obviously, was a lone wolf, too, and sort of had this shell around him, but he was, you know, the most talented player of all time, so he was sort of able to get away with it. It sort of all added up to the legend of him, whereas maybe it doesn't, you know, at least to this point, hasn't worked quite as well for Reed.
1: Yeah, I guess, I think that's the explanation. It's that Patrick Reed is great, but he's just like a notch below how great you need to be to get away with how much of an asshole he is. Yeah, Like, Tiger Woods probably was not any less of an asshole than Patrick Reed is. He was just Tiger Woods.
2: And Tiger right. Woods had friends, though. I mean, Nota Begay was apparently legitimately a friend. I mean, there were people on yeah, the tour that's a good that point. he had roughly three to four friends. Yeah, <laughs> But maybe Tiger Woods is less of an asshole than Patrick Reed in some well, ways. And, and, and without getting too deep into the psychoanalysis of Patrick Reed, there are... We're already clear, there, buddy. That's clear, what I showed right? up are, for today. There. Okay, great. um In that case... Now, this, there's some really dysfunctional aspects to his life story. I mean, clearly this is a very insecure person. He has had terrifically strained—I mean, he's, he's separated from his parents and his sister. I mean, that to me—and Josh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that family dynamic because it is, it is sad.
1: Yeah, so he got married really young in 2012. To so
2: someone who's like five years or four or five years older.
1: And his parents apparently didn't approve of the marriage. They're estranged. He was living with them, with his parents, when he was at Augusta State. Um, and the parents tried to reconcile at the 2014 U.S. Open. Likely went there in the, in the crowd, like his fans. And Patrick Reed's wife got their badges taken away and got them escorted off of the property And then this weekend, Alan Shipnick, who we mentioned already, watched Sunday at the Masters with Patrick Reed's parents on Sunday. And it's just like a horrible situation where he describes them being proud of their son, but like how sad they are. But then there are also allegations that Reed's father was like abusive to him in terms of being like, you know, like how sports parents are. So – but then,
2: the the, right. the it, then there's also the part that the in laws have, and 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 Patrick Reed's wife have have basically prevented him from reconciling with his family, and that they are his entourage now. It's his yeah, wife's I mean, family.
3: It, it's something that looks. Uh, it, it sort of makes Patrick Reed look like the villain just because you don't know his side of the story yet, because he doesn't want to share it just yet. I mean, you read that story, and his family is is so happy for him winning it. And then it's like, but Patrick Reed, you know, refuses to say to it. And it's not because Alan Shipnuck was unfair. He has asked, you know, Patrick Reed repeatedly for his side of the story, but Reed doesn't want to get into it. But I imagine now that he is, you know, a master's winner, which takes him to a much new, much higher level of fame that maybe more on this is going to come out.
1: Yeah. And Shane Ryan's book came out a few years ago and Shane sat down with Patrick Reed and his wife for an interview. And I think to his credit, Shane said in the book, Patrick Reed lied to me about this. He lied about this. He lied about this. And And he explicitly called it lying, which journalists often don't do. But it does seem like there was intent to deceive um, with with Reed about what had happened to him in college and stuff. So we'll see if he wants to come clean. But this is obviously not a surprise. But It's just so striking every year just on the CBS broadcast, Jim, just how— sanitized are we pivoting a yeah. version of the event they present and obviously nothing zero that we have discussed today was m- mentioned by jim nance or nick faldo or any of those people
3: oh yeah of course not i i don't they I did don't talk
1: about how patrick reed likes Im- imagine dragons though so.
3: they did talk about that but i mean they didn't even acknowledge that you know Nobody wanted Patrick Reed to win. Like they can't.
2: They could have played it as an underdog story: the guy who is sort of an outcast on the tour rises up and wins the Masters.
1: They didn't even do the euphemistic troubled past thing. I don't think, right. unless I missed uh, that. Yeah,
3: I felt I. I think there was some, you know, very vague reference, like he rubbed some people the wrong way <laughs> along the line. <laughs> like he rubbed them the wrong way, meaning stole their money. But, I mean <laughs> it doesn't prevents it presents Allegedly. a
2: dilemma. I mean CBS obviously is in the weirdest position because A they sanitize everything at the masters because they're forced to. Butler cabin. Um but B it's like how do you write about this guy? How do you mention this stuff and the you saw it in the coverage of the tournament itself. Writers and players really straining to get across the notion that the winner of the Masters, whom we are supposed to revere and put on this pedestal after this great achievement in this sport, is a jerk. So did instead, you, the you Dave, get, did you,
1: you know, see the Dave Kindred piece? No, he like he writes on Saturday. Man, wouldn't it be great if anyone but Patrick Reed wins the tournament? Then no, he writes on Sunday. Well, here we are. (laughs) Dave Kendrick, our friend. Excellent,
2: Dave. Um, You know, so instead we get, you know, golf winners are supposed to show humility, not hubris. um, And players say things like, well, I love
1: beating him because he's such a competitor.
2: It's like, well, just come out and say it.
1: I mean, I want to root for the guy just for the reason that I said before, like the finger wagging and like, Mm -hmm. just like the. The dumb, like, pump-up stuff that he does on the course, I think, is really great and entertaining. I I,
3: I think, you know, I I don't think he's as much of an asshole just as a heel who's sort of fun to root against, you know? I mean, I, I do think it's mostly, like, the way he conducts himself on the course is mostly harmless, you know? It's something where he's just trying to get himself pumped up. It just strikes me as a little funny,
2: well, and there's also the the physical appearance. He's not like you know all these for all these stories over the right. last decade about the buff golfer and everyone's hitting right. the gym and tiger has changed the way golfers treat their bodies and and so here we have this adult son slash dad bod winning the masters.
1: the thing that uh Stefan briefly alluded to earlier as far as his like on course self flagellation um is that in? It was at a world golf championship event in Shanghai. He was caught saying, Nice fucking three putt, you fucking faggot. Go fucking hang yourself. Which, A, is like awful for reasons that I don't need to explain. Um, but B, it's like so dark. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, he is just an incredibly tortured guy, it seems. And you just keep going back and forth between thinking he's just a terrible person and just being incredibly sad for him. And it's just a very weird feeling to have the day after this guy, you know, wins a major championship.
3: Yeah, I I think it's interesting. And this is going to be a stretch. But, you know, he, he admired everything that Tiger did growing up, like to the point of dressing like him on Sundays. Wearing
4: the red shirt. It's almost
3: like he thought that Tiger's, you know, lone wolf, um, you know, keeping his distance, keeping it all private from everyone. He It's almost like he thought that was cool, even though we saw that sort of psychologically explode in Tiger Woods's life, you know, as the years went on. But it does you do see some sort of resemblances like he can give the, you know, the polite interview afterwards. But if something bad happens on the course, like he will just curse his mouth off or whatever. And you don't you don't really know what's going on, you know, within him at any time.
2: Right. But in Tiger's life, you know, the appearances were all great other than, you know, look, his driven father, golf clubs at four. But outwardly. You know, married someone who seemed normal, had Why can't had Patrick children? Reed fake it
1: better? Yeah. Like Tiger did. <laughs> My last thought on uh, on Mr. Reed is that in every story like this of, you know, a, a kid who's like great at sports but really bratty and throws clubs and just is too competitive and angry, there's always the kind of moment of comeuppance or an inflection point where they realize that their behavior is holding him back. But that just never happened for him because he always, I don't know if there's correlation or causation, but it's never held him back from success or from winning. Um, And so there hasn't really been a reason for him to change from a golf or competitive standpoint. And it doesn't seem like he feels like there's a reason for him to change from an interpersonal standpoint.
3: Right. Well, I mean, there's time yet, you know. He's, he's only, only twenty seven. <laughs> he's only twenty seven. So who knows? Maybe that comeuppance that that the narrative requires will come along sooner or later. But yeah, I mean, he he keeps it, like all this stuff that you know he gets criticized over. It it works for him. So it's sort of you know in a way silly that we all talk about how oh he doesn't have any friends. Well maybe he doesn't want any friends. He maybe he would just rather mm-hmm. win tournaments than live in his mansion with his wife and his beloved in laws.
1: Well, Jim Newell writes about golf for Slate, has so many friends that he couldn't possibly relate to Patrick <laughs> Reed, despite the fact that he spent all weekend by himself watching golf. But that's that's what you wanted to do.
3: That is exactly what I wanted to do.
1: Um, I'm glad you're happy, Jim. Thanks, as always, for coming on the show. Yep. Thank you. Before Bruce Arthur joins us to discuss the Humboldt bus crash – Wanted to let you know that Bruce will be sticking around to talk about a couple of other hockey things as the playoffs are set to begin. Uh, the first thing, the scourge of goalie interference, which led one fan to mail a fish to the league office. Catfish. Uh, the second, the retirement of Vancouver's Sedin twins, some of the best twins on the ice are off. If you want to hear that conversation, you can join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can sign up at Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn.
2: Every few years, not as often as possible, often enough to know that there will be a next one, tragedy strikes a sports team. We always remember them. The U.S. figure skating team in 1960, the Wichita State and Marshall football teams in 1970, the Russian hockey team, Locomotive, in 2011, the Brazilian soccer team, Chapecoense, in 2016. There was another one in Canada over the weekend – 15 people, including 10 players on the Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team in the province of Saskatchewan, dead in a collision between the team bus and route to a playoff game and a tractor trailer. Toronto Star columnist Bruce Arthur joins us now. Hey, Bruce. Hey, guys. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau attended a vigil on Sunday night in the small town of Humboldt. There have been moments of silence at NHL games. A GoFundMe campaign for the victims' families has raised more than four and a half million Canadian. It's not overstating it to say that there's been a national outpouring of grief here.
0: Yeah, and and there are reasons for that beyond the the obvious tragedy. I mean, brush crashes happen everywhere. They happen in this country a lot. There's a lot of winter driving. Um, this one though, like when one of these things happens in Canada, and this is, this is probably analogous to other places, but Canada, everybody knows what it feels like because if you've ever played sports in this country at any kind of high level, uh, if you've ever been part of a school band that travels or a theater group or, or anything like people in this country, it's a big country with not that many people. And there are urban centers, and there are a lot of small towns. And so the way to get places for a lot of people is to drive. Everybody in a, most kind of high-level sports knows what it's like to be on the bus. And this is the worst uh, sports crash, I believe, in Canadian history, 15 dead. Um, and it's, I don't even know what you say. No one really knows what to say, other than the fact that, that people are going to pull together and and people will try to recover from this, but it's horrific loss and it's horrific loss in a part of the country where these kind of teams uh, mean an awful lot to people and to communities.
1: In reading about the accident, um, for those of us who aren't familiar, um, I was learning about this phenomenon of junior hockey in Canada, especially in Saskatchewan and how these towns, as you said, rally around their teams. One of the um, things that's extremely important culturally in Saskatchewan and in Canada as a whole, I think, is um, the host family um, phenomenon where um, these players, junior hockey players, go away from home and essentially have second families, um, second you know, groups of parents. And so it's not only... You know, parents of children who can relate to this tragedy and think about um, how this this could have happened to their families—it's host families as well.
0: Yeah, the, the the ways in which this tragedy ripples and spreads and is connected to so many people. Uh, billet families are a tradition in Canadian hockey because you send your boys away a lot of the time in junior hockey if, you, if they're really good. They're unlikely to be living with you. They're going to stay with host families. There was one woman, Renee Cannon, who had three of the boys who were lost in the crash, um, and it, it's it's just a part of how we how our system works. We like there there's kids who play college hockey in Canada, but those are not the kids who are going to make the NHL. The kids are going to make the NHL go through the NCAA, They go through junior, and junior means you got to stay with someone on this team. On this Humboldt team, Humboldt is a is a like I said, it's not a big town. They've had this. Uh, town since 1970. They've won 10 titles since 1970. That's the most in their league. And they had kids from Alberta. They had kids from Saskatchewan. They've had kids from the States. Like people want to play for Humboldt. So there's just, there's extra layers to this. And one thing I, I, I wrote about Saskatchewan, I've talked to a lot of people from Saskatchewan about this over the years. Saskatchewan has a little over a million people. Uh, it didn't have an economy for a long time. So a lot of people left. And finally, the economy started to turn around. It started to come back. And even then, Saskatchewan feels like a big town that got split into hundreds of smaller ones. Everyone knows somebody. Everyone is connected to somebody. It is a it, it's a it's a big small community.
2: Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the junior hockey phenomenon in Canada. You know, in the states, the the our our feeder sports tend to be locally based. Um, you know, travel clubs. Um, You know, the longest that, you know, obviously kids and and teenagers will will make weekend trips and and weekend trips to tournaments and longer trips to tournaments. But this is a firmament of of Canadians, of Canada's national sport. These are and we didn't specify. I mean, these are are, our young men, 15 to 20, correct? 15 to 21, um, who are mostly looking as you said for college scholarships, some of whom will go on to get drafted, uh you quoted Connor mcdavid uh the n h l star in in the column you wrote over the weekend, um saying that 's exactly why it hits home everyone 's been on that bus before. every guy in the n h l understands this
0: yeah well, and, and this is junior A right, which is a level below major junior a, as you, as you mentioned. These kids are looking for college scholarships. They've only had five guys make the NHL at a Humboldt since 1970. One of them played one game. Um, but if you made the NHL and you played junior, you rode the bus.
1: If you want to get really depressed, and we're, we're in the middle of a, of a quite depressing conversation, so you're already on the way there, um, there's a Wikipedia page of a list of accidents involving sports teams. Stefan listed some of them. In the introduction, um, I just happened to look at this page yesterday and was looking at the newspaper coverage of the first accident that's on this list, which is a 1903 train crash involving members of the Purdue University football team. This is known as the Purdue Wreck, and you can see kind of how these tragedies turn into lore years ago. This is like a enormously important and memorialized thing at Purdue, this thing that happened 115 years ago, 14 members of the team killed. And when you look back at the newspaper coverage, it like hits all of the same beats that we're hitting today. And I think the phenomenon of not really knowing what to say and how to encompass a tragedy at, at this scale, we can relate to people a century ago. But there was just a story that came out Um, before we started recording today about a case of mistaken identity where one of the players in the Humboldt crash was misidentified. And so a parent was told um, the body of Parker Tobin was mistaken for that of Xavier LaBelle. So just imagine what these parents on both sides are going through. But that actually happened in the Purdue crash in 1903 when I was looking back at this old Coverage. Um, there were cases where parents were told that their, you know, children had died, but they were actually just in the hospital and unidentified. And so, I, you know, you do feel the kind of connection through time of these events happening, and it is just striking that the same things just keep happening. Well, and, and, over and over. the
2: connection also is that these tragedies are so poignant because athletes are young. Athletes are healthy, athletes are talented, and people connect to them in sometimes totally normal and sometimes totally irrational ways. We don't like young people dying. We don't like um, gifted kids who bring us joy playing games to see this happen. I mean, it's so anomalous.
1: This is an obvious point, Bruce, but in all of these accidents – almost, I'm, maybe there's an exception, they're like, go, they're literally going to a game. They're, you know, going to um, do the thing that they love to do. And that people love to watch them do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and in this case, they're going to a playoff game. There were people behind them from the town going up the same road, because that's the road you take. Um, you're right about, about young men and, and the mythologizing of, that happens there, because, and, and in these small towns, this is the NHL team for a lot of these kids. It's the NHL team for that town, especially on the prairies. Um, that's that's just what they are. I talked to Sheldon Kennedy, who was in the Swift Current Broncos crash in nineteen eighty six, and what he remembers about the crash is the chaos afterwards. Who made it, who didn't, whose son isn't gonna come home, whose husband isn't gonna come home, and you don't have the answers right away. And and in Swift Current, like that crash happened geez, thirty years ago. The M V P trophy in that league is still called the Four Broncos Trophy. The teams in that league still wear a patch memorializing that team. Uh, it took a long time for the for the memorial to be put up because there was red tape and there was a fight over what they were going to do, and eventually someone just did it. These things never go away, and maybe it's it speaks to how rare they are, um, because there there aren't so many that you can't remember. But in those communities, especially, you never forget, especially in a small town in the winter. Like, what do you do? Where do you go? Where do you go out? And what happens in a lot of Canadian towns is you go to the rink. And whatever level of hockey it is, it's a social gathering place in the same way that a church is or even a community hall. It's, 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 It's a center of the town. The way Sheldon Kennedy put it, these are the heartbeats of these towns. And when so much of it is destroyed out of the blue, out of nowhere, on a sunny day, on a flat road... This will never go away. This will be remembered in Saskatchewan forever.
2: Bruce Arthur is a columnist for the Toronto Star. Bruce, thank you for joining us to talk about this.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: On Tuesday, in his first home game as a major leaguer, the Los Angeles Angels' Shohei Otani went three for four with a home run as the team's designated hitter. The next day, he went two for five with another homer. And on Friday, he went one for four with Stefan. A homer. Homer. After a day off on Saturday, and honestly, how dare he take a day off? Otani took the mound on Sunday and had a perfect game into the seventh inning, ultimately allowing one hit and striking out 12. This guy is extremely good. <laughs> Joining us now to discuss Otani and other baseball stuff is Ben Lindbergh, who writes about baseball for the ringer and is the co host of the Effectively Wild podcast and the author, the co author with Sam Miller of the book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Hello, Ben. Hello. So Ben, let's get yes. let's let's get real here. Okay. Otani's spring training stats were really bad. Um, they were bad. That led Chris Russo and Mike Francesa to have the following conversation.
2: The question is, is he going to embarrass somebody? Is he going to be as bad as everyone says he's, oh, he's been? he's awful in spring training. If this is a guy who people were talking about being the greatest player in baseball. They have the best player in baseball on that team. They brought a guy in and they were talking this guy up like crazy and he hasn't produced anything yet. The Yankees are lucky they didn't get him. And, the, and I tell you, the Angels are impossible. Even if they wanted to send him down to the minor leagues? Can't. How do you send him down it to the minor looking, leagues? It, it, it looked terrible. It, it He's big. You, you can't ridiculous. do that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 I love how Chris Russo says, down the minor leagues. the minor leagues. <laughs> he I also hasn't love how produced they anything everything. yet. I love how they filter everything. <laughs> the season everything. hadn't
2: started. And I love how, <laughs> <laughs> how they filter everything through the
1: Yankees lens. <laughs> right. It's all about the Yankees. <laughs> um, we've already mocked. It's easy for us to mock. But the truth is the guy did look really bad in spring training. Was he not trying then was Shohei Otani not giving us full spring training effort? What was going on? Well, of course, he
5: was training in two ways, right? And he was also coming to a new continent with the language barrier and new league and new opponents and new teammates. Everything was new. It was a greater challenge for him than for anyone else. and in certain ways he was impressive, like certainly the stuff was impressive. And even if you look at strikeouts and walks and just the swings and misses he was getting, that was impressive too. So I don't think there was that much reason to worry. There were certainly anonymous scouts who were sniping about how he wasn't going to hit and he looked like a high school hitter and he'd have to go down to the minors for a full season. But turns out a couple weeks of spring training action is not totally predictive of how a player will perform in the regular season.
1: That's been the most surprising thing I mean the extent to how good he is as a pitcher is obviously surprising you don't expect a guy to throw almost a perfect game in his second major league start but the hitting like I was convinced by the Jeff Passan piece where he talked to like seven different scouts all of whom said he sucked Mm -hmm. as a hitter Um, do you have any thoughts on the hitting part in particular Ben?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think there's still more uncertainty surrounding that side of his game than the pitching side. But what we've seen so far, I mean, I'm just bathing in the glow of this week, which is not something I normally say about early April (laughs) baseball. But I think within this week, which obviously is a small sample, he has demonstrated skills that should continue to help him throughout this whole season. And those are obvious on the mound where he's throwing 100 miles per hour, and he has this nasty splitter, and he's getting swings and misses. But Even at the plate, he's hitting balls really hard, like harder than some hitters ever hit the ball. So the power is real. I think we could still speculate about whether he will strike out a lot. He hasn't really yet, but maybe over the course of a season, he'll chase pitches too much. I mean, there's there's just more uncertainty about that. But we know that the actual core skills and his ability to drive the ball are there. And with the Angels constructed the way they are, that's going to be the question that's going to be really fascinating throughout the season is, Do they push him? Do they stick to this restraint that they've shown so far of starting him once a week as a pitcher and then two or three times a week as a DH? Are they going to be tempted to use him more as a hitter, given that the alternative is Albert Pujols or Chris Young? And are they going to be tempted even to DH him on the days that he pitches? That's going to be one of the most compelling storylines of the season. At one point, he had
2: retired 27 consecutive batters (laughs) over the two starts. which is pretty wonderful. Um, The other wonderful thing is that I came into this being really skeptical that the Angels would allow the experiment to proceed in the way that I think we all hoped it would proceed. And it's kind of proceeding the way you'd want it to. You want to see him bat three or four times a week, and you want to see him pitch at least once a week. I think the the question I have, Ben, is – not only whether the team will allow that pace to continue, but whether the realities of major league baseball versus playing in the in the Japan League will catch up with Otani and the team at some point and force some sort of rollback. Do you think that will be dependent on what? The numbers, his production? The the sort of the lizard brain of baseball taking over at some point and saying we have to protect and we have to go back and we have to have this guy specialize in one thing or another
5: hopefully we're past the lizard brain point. That was a worry, I think, going into the season and even before he signed, would anyone even give him this chance? And if he struggled at all, would that be used as a reason to just cut him back to being a one-way player? And I I think we've passed that point. That doesn't mean that some terrible slump couldn't bust him back to being only a pitcher, but I hope that we passed that point. Now, obviously, there's no precedent for this, which is what makes it so special and so compelling. So we can't really point to previous players and say here's the risk here's where they break down here's where it goes wrong I think it's just entirely going to depend on whether he's able to stay healthy whether it looks like there's any sign of fatigue whether he loses velocity anything like that where he's not hitting the ball as hard whether he has nagging injuries those kind of things could get in the way but you know they are being responsible with him and they've talked to his trainers and managers in Japan to see how he was handled there and obviously he's done this before and he has the experience of doing this before which is one of the reasons why I wasn't as worried about him as I would have been based on the spring training performance is that he's already demonstrated that he can do this over full seasons at a level that is higher than any domestic minor league level Japanese baseball is quadruple a it's it's between triple a and the majors and he was both the best hitter and the best pitcher in that league at extremely young ages so that wasn't a fluke
2: Ben, you mentioned that there's really no precedent for what Shohei Ohtani is doing, but the precedent everyone always mentions is Babe Ruth. And if you go back and look at Babe Ruth's stats from his time on the Boston Red Sox, where he both pitched and hit, you see a clear distinction. In 1916 and 1917, he was predominantly a pitcher, 40 starts, 38 starts, won 23 and 24 games, Uh, He only batted in 67 games in 1916 and 52 games in 1917. And then in 1918, the last time the Red Sox won the World Series until recently, he became a hitter. Only 19 starts in 1918, 15 starts in 1919, but almost 400 played appearances in 18 and more than 500 in 1919. So I guess the... The thing to look for is whether Otani has more of a 50 50 split and doesn't trend one way or the other batting versus. It may
5: be like in the last week, he was worth exactly one win above replacement level, which is a a very prosaic way to express what he did. It was more fun to watch than to look at the stats, but he was worth exactly half a win as a pitcher and half a win as a hitter. And it would be hard, I think, for that split to persist. Like even in Japan, in 2016, he had a 10.4 win above replacement season, and that's with a 143-game schedule. But even then, it was like 60-40, roughly, pitcher-hitter, and I would expect it to be something like that. But it's tough because he has to maintain some kind of balance here. If he gets too good at one or too much better at one than the other, then there will always be that temptation to cut back on the one not to jeopardize the the one that he's the best at. I think the good thing is that the Angels really need every win here. They're in a wild card race. Their playoff odds as we speak are right around 40% even with their 7 and 3 start. So, they need every extra run and the alternatives at DH are not appealing. So, I think they will continue to use him as long as he's competent in that role and it's just really been fun to watch. I mean, he's appointment viewing at this point in a way that I can't really remember a baseball player being. We've certainly seen better baseball players and some of the best of all time in the last couple decades, but I don't know that I've ever seen one who makes me want to watch every pitch and every plate appearance the way that I do with Otani. And it's great to have that hype be completely validated so soon into the season.
1: It has been an exciting season for non. Otani reasons. Bryce Harper off to a fantastic start, um, making himself some money. Good for him. Excited excited for his uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in his impending free agency. Um, But the big offseason transaction was Giancarlo Stanton going to the Yankees, and he already has two games where, are we calling it the platinum sombrero? Yeah. Five strikeouts. Yes. <laughs> He's like the only guy ever to have two in the same season. And it's like April the 9th that, that we're at now. He's already struck out 20 times. That's a lot of strikeouts. Um I think the only thing that we can say about him, given uh, that we are in the very early stages of the season, is that um, he strikes out a lot and he is going to strike out a lot. He's obviously going to play better than this and turn it around. Um, but is there anything that you've seen so far with Stanton, um, Banner? Is the only thing really to say that he just had a really bad couple weeks?
5: Yeah, I think that's basically what it boils down to. There are small samples you can overreact to or or react to appropriately, and there are small samples you can dismiss. And with Otani, we can look at how hard he hits the ball, how hard he throws the ball and say, yeah, he's legitimately great, even if he's not this great all season. With Stanton, I just don't think there's anything all that worrisome. It's funny because on opening day, he hit two homers, and we all heard that, oh, the pressure is off, and now he doesn't have to live up to expectations, and no one is going to question whether he can play in pinstripes. And I guess technically he wasn't in pinstripes at the time because the Yankees were on the road. So, of course, once they came home, he's been booed. But overall, if you look at his line for the season, it's a weird one. He's batting like 167 with a 429 slugging percentage. But if you look at it as a whole, he's basically been a league average hitter this year. He has three homers and two doubles, even though he doesn't have many other hits. And he does have a lot of strikeouts. And it's just nothing to worry about. I think the fact that the Yankees are struggling somewhat in other areas has increased the attention on Stanton. They've had a a bunch of losses where they were winning and then... up losing the bullpen which is supposed to be great is not pitching great right now they've had injury issues and so of course stanton as the reigning NL MVP and the highest paid player he's going to get a lot of that abuse but i just don't see it as any more than a blip that we wouldn't even really notice if it were 10 days that came in the middle of the season as opposed to the start of the season boo (laughs) it's also when yankee fans boo their new star It's like a cliche at this point. They don't really need it. And everyone's striking out. We've set a new strikeout record for like 10 years in a row, something like that, and it's higher now than it's ever been before. So the platinum sombrero, whatever we're calling it, is becoming more common across the league.
1: Item number three on our what can we determine from this small, extremely bizarre sample of events (laughs) is like Gabe Kapler making mistakes as a manager that i didn't even know a manager could make he's like (laughs) breaking new ground here so here is the the bullet pointed list i think this is via david uh of vspn of things that gabe kapler the new supposedly smart and analytically inclined phillies manager has done this year in the first game of the year he took out uh, his starter aaron nola after 68 pitches while he was throwing a shutout and the phillies went on to blow a five nothing lead um He's I think, by like signaling incorrectly, managed to bring in a relief pitcher who hadn't actually warmed up. Yes, um he brought in, he signaled for one of his outfielders to move in and play more shallow, and then immediately had the Mets Ahmed Rosario hit the ball over the guy's head for the game winning hit. Um, a, an anonymous Philly was quoted as saying, we'll be okay. We just need the manager to get out of the way. What do you make of his performance over the first week and a half of the season?
5: Yeah, he's getting booed during routine pitching changes now, even the ones that aren't strange where the reliever is already warmed up. So it's gotten out of hand on Effectively Wild. We've been doing a, a regular segment, the Gabe Kapler Criticism Watch, where we just talk about the latest Breathless column, about what Kapler did in in the recent loss. And I think it's a mix of actual growing pains and strange messaging and mistakes And then someone who just manages a little differently and speaks a little differently than the typical manager, I think go back a few years and you were hearing the same sort of anonymous comments and some on-the-record comments about the way the Astros were doing things and they're treating players like robots and then of course they get good and they win the World Series and no one criticizes the Astros anymore. So sure, bringing in a reliever who is not warmed up, that's a bad look. That's not something that major league managers do and coming as it did at the very start Of his tenure, I think that focused attention on him even more. But things like the shift not working out every time, I mean, that's been a staple of baseball for years now. You happen to move a guy over, and the ball is hit in a place where it's not usually hit, and it costs you that time that happens to everyone. And you can fixate on the times when that happens, or you can concentrate on the times when it works, which in theory, at least are more numerous. So I think it's partly that he's just an intense guy. He's clearly managing the heck out of this team, whether you say it's overmanaging or not. He's making a lot of bullpen moves. And so he's going to get criticized for that. He just doesn't speak like the typical manager. He speaks more like a GM or like a business consultant or something. And I I think it's taking players and fans and media members time to adjust to that. So I think the real problem is the clubhouse, not so much the columns or the booze. If the clubhouse is banded against him and, and that anonymous comment is representative of other players, that could potentially be a problem. Otherwise, I would expect that things will settle down and he will actually make it through his inaugural season.
2: You mentioned the shift, Ben, and I think we should close with some other things that have been fun to watch at the start of this baseball season and have made us text each other with, you should turn on a baseball game and things like that. Uh, the Minnesota Twins got very mad because the Baltimore Orioles apparently broke an unwritten rule. Josh wrote about this for Slate last week. Chance Cisco of the Orioles bunted for a single in the ninth inning of a game that the Twins were winning, seven to nothing, tremendous disrespect, not only toward the Twins, but toward the game. They were not playing yes. the game the right way.
5: Nope. Game's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. That was. What <laughs> an typical... entertaining
2: beginning of season, Fair. Sure.
5: Yeah. Silly unwritten rules yeah. controversy where the shift is on. So clearly the team is trying to get out and trying to get that hitter out. And so it seems only just for that hitter to retaliate by not trying to make an out. But no, that was frowned upon. You could look at it just as kind of a. Gamesmanship thing, as many unwritten rules controversies are, where you're essentially trying to cow an opponent into not doing something that is beneficial to that opponent by making a stink about it when it happens. But yeah, if Brian Dozier was taking that seriously, it was it was among the more silly baseball unwritten rules controversies, and and that's a, a pretty silly group as a whole.
1: Yeah, Sam Miller, the beloved Sam Miller, wrote a piece for ESPN about looking at unwritten rules policing as this kind of like psychological warfare. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really buy it in this specific case, (laughs) even though it was interesting to think about because it's like Brian Dozier just, and forget, forgive me, Dozier family. But like based on what he said there he just doesn't seem like he's operating on that kind of like three-dimensional chess <laughs> sort of level. It just seemed like a dumb thing that he that he said. Yeah, I think you're probably right. He has great hair though. Well, in the end isn't that the most important thing? Um maybe we'll leave it uh to Ben to close out. We've talked about the things that have fascinated us over the first uh, little bit of the season. What's one thing we haven't mentioned? ban that you has struck you? Well, I guess we've talked about shifts. We haven't talked about some of
5: the even more unorthodox defensive alignments we've seen. The Astros pushing the envelope with a four-man outfield which is not violating any unwritten rules as far as I'm aware. This is one of these tactics that resurfaces in baseball every decade or so, and everyone hails it as innovative and visionary, but you can actually go back to the 50s and find people who did it then, and then one manager cycles out of the game and everyone forgets about it. But we are seeing teams push the envelope even more with that sort of thing as just the – the data really takes over more and more, and players themselves are using the data much more than they used to, which I think is one of the more fascinating trends in all of baseball is just players kind of reclaiming stats and data and turning themselves into different players than they were before. I think the the inefficiency in baseball has sort of shifted from finding undervalued players who are already good but teams don't recognize it to – building better players, basically, to finding players who just haven't been that good and reinventing them by changing their swing or changing their pitch mix or giving them a new pitch. That has been kind of the the new trend, the hot new sabermetric strategy that all of the teams are trying to
1: pursue. That's really interesting. And I feel like I want to just immediately have another segment about that, but maybe <laughs> we should do that. Maybe we should do that another time. Josh
2: is so excited about (laughs) baseball that he wants to do back-to-back baseball segments.
1: (laughs) Let's play two. Let's do that another time, Ben. Uh, Ben Lindberg writes about baseball for The Ringer. He is the co-host of Effectively Wild, the podcast, and he co-wrote the book, The Only Rule is It Has to Work. Thank you. My pleasure. bus crash. I mentioned the Purdue wreck from 1903. 17 people killed, among them 14 Purdue University football players. Um, And there was a case um, in the Purdue wreck where someone was presumed dead. A football player named Harry G. Leslie was erroneously reported as um, one of the people who had died in that crash, went on to survive and became the governor of the state of Indiana. Harry G. Leslie. Stefan, what is your Harry G. Leslie?
2: Well, after our conversation with Dave Kindred a few weeks ago, we received an email from a listener named Jane. She liked the interview, but she had a beef. She's sick of school sports teams affixing the word lady in front of the nickname for girls or women's teams. In this case, it was the Lady Potters of Morton High School in Illinois. I'm sick of this, too, and I meant to bring it up with Kindred, but I forgot. Jane, though, did a nice job in her email summarizing why these lady nicknames are dumb. One, the boys or men's teams at these schools aren't the gentlemen whatevers. Using a qualifier for the girls or women's teams reinforces their status as other. Two, lady is retrograde. Sure, dictionary definitions offer it as a synonym for woman, but the primary senses, the ones that show up before a woman— are things like a woman of good family or of superior social position, a woman who is refined, polite, and well-spoken, a woman whose conduct conforms to a certain standard of propriety or correct behavior, a well-bred woman. None of those qualities have anything to do with athletes. Lady is patriarchal. It's demeaning. It's diminutive. It is a dumb, dumb word to apply to girls and women who play sports, but, As the events of the last couple of years have demonstrated, we still live in a patriarchal, demeaning, and dumb world. As with Native American nicknames, slow progress is being made. Since the 1990s, a bunch of colleges and universities have dropped Lady from the name for its women's teams. So no more Lady Ravens, Lady Razorbacks, Lady Cats with a K at Kentucky, Lady Bulldogs, Lady Saints because we all know that Christianity distinguishes saints by gender. Lady Titans, Lady Patriots, again, gender critical when you're a patriot. Lady Minors, Lady Blues, Lady Frogs. But according to a story in the Tennessean newspaper in 2015, 95 NCAA institutions are still ladying it up. Campbell University's women's basketball team is the Lady Camels. All the other teams are the Fighting Camels. No fighting, ladies. Cal State Northridge, the Lady Matadors, Delta State, the Lady Statesmen, which I'm puzzled by because stateswomen seems pretty obvious. Not that
1: hard. No, it should be Lady States, ladies.
2: The Emporia State, Lady Hornets, the Liberty Lady Flames, because you really need to specify the gender (laughs) of a flame. Josh, your beloved LSU calls its women's teams— that have no male analog tigers, but those that have a male analog lady tigers. Old Dominion does this too. Are you gonna jump in and defend LSU here?
1: No, I was just gonna say that, like, one of the purposes of this is obviously to distinguish them yes. in like news coverage. I'm
2: getting there, yeah. Old Dominion does this too. It uses lady monarchs for field hockey and lacrosse which is pretty stupid because a monarch is already fucking gender neutral. A monarch is a king or a queen. Montana's women's basketball team is the Lady Grizz. Penn State still calls its women's basketball team the Lady Lions. Why not go all the way, Penn State, I say, Lionesses. And a big shout-out to Alcorn State for, in 2011, choosing to accept NCAA sanctions by keeping its native nickname and compounding the slur... By calling its women's teams the Lady Braves. Double shot of assholery. Also bad, Josh, the Central Arkansas Sugar Bears and the Kentucky State Thoroughbreds. The men's teams are the Thoroughbreds. Is Thoroughbred a real word? No. And thoroughbred horses are both male and female. The Tennessean was reporting on this back in 2015 because that's when the University of Tennessee decided to drop Lady Vols from all of its women's teams except for basketball. It did that, the school said, not for gender equality, but for branding equality. The basketball team was its own brand, sort of what you were mentioning. We want to distinguish the brands. But people actually protested 40,000 signatures on a petition, fans chanting Lady Vols at softball games, and a new chancellor and athletic director who caved, blabbing about tradition and legacy and other nonsense. As for the Potters, they are named for the town's history of pottery making. Morton Pottery is apparently a thing. Dave Kindred, I asked him over the weekend about Lady Potters. He said he uses the Lady only on first reference and then drops it as my form of silent protest, come on, Dave, go whole hog, no more lady, even on first reference, Morton High, get rid of the lady. I'm tired of his lady business. And also, Josh, the easiest way to distinguish them in media coverage is to say the men's basketball team and the women's
1: basketball team.
2: Pretty simple solution. There. Josh, what's your Harry G. Leslie
1: Augusta National Golf Club did not have a black member until 1990 when businessman Ron Townsend was invited to join. Many decades before that, the club's membership included Georgia's segregationist governor, Lester Maddox, as well as Freeman Gosden, who played Amos on the minstrelly Amos and Andy radio show. The man who presided over this racist institution was Clifford Roberts, who served as Augusta National Chairman from 1931 to 1976, and who is reputed to have said, as long as I'm alive, all the golfers will be white and all the caddies will be black. Lee Elder became the first black player in the history of the Masters in 1975. That was two years before uh, Roberts' death at age 83. He actually killed himself, self-inflicted gunshot wound on the Augusta National course. Um, The caddies' rule, though, was still in place until six years after Roberts' death, until 1983, with players required to use Augusta National's caddies, all of whom were black, uh, rather than using the caddies that they um, had with them at other tour events. In addition to the caddies, all of the staff at Augusta National was black. And that staff was led by a man named Bowman Milligan, the club steward. He was the first person Clifford Roberts ever hired. That was back in the 1930s. According to Alan Shipnick's book, The Battle for Augusta National, Milligan would awaken the chairman every morning, tuck him in at night, and attend to him in the hours in between. Dan Jenkins, writing in Sports Illustrated in 1968, wrote this about Milligan. Uh, Milligan died, by the way, in the 1980s. Uh, Bowman is a big fellow with a smudge of gray at his temples and a baritonish voice who has probably heard his name called out more than anyone in the history of Augusta National, but unrattled and dutiful, he maintains the carriage and the plum of one who has spent a lifetime catering to millionaires. Primarily, Bowman is in charge of hiring and overseeing the Negro employees at the club, the waiters, bartenders, chauffeurs, maids, and others. But if during Master's Week, Claude Harmon cannot get a glass of iced tea fast enough, or if Ben Hogan does not like the look of the lettuce on his sandwich, a holler of Bowman is heard. And somehow Bowman is always nearby. I work from cant to cant, he says of Master's Week. I try to rise to the occasion. My main job is remembering, trying to remember everything there is to be done. The most remarkable story I found about Milligan And one of the most revelatory about Augusta took place early in his tenure. So this is around the 1930s, 1940s. Milligan's job or one of his jobs was to arrange entertainment for the members uh, when they would come for this jamboree at Augusta National. And one of the entertainments that he would arrange is at a hotel called the Bon Air Vanderbilt. He would arrange a battle royal And this was described by Furman Bisher in a column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 2000. Bisher described it as a free-for-all in which several young boys were set at it inside a ring, and the last one standing was the winner. These were obviously all young black children who were forced to uh, fight each other for the entertainment of these rich white millionaires, which is just a remarkable uh, tableau and thing to think about. Um, but one of the kids who participated in these battle Royals was a boxer named Sidney Walker, who, uh, was later named as many boxers are, had fought under a different name. The name Bo Jack, um, became the world lightweight champion Became one of the most popular uh, and well-known boxers in the world during World War II. Was a headliner at Madison Square Garden twenty-one times, um, uh, and the way that Bo Jack became a world boxing champion was he, he was backed by members of Augusta National. Bo Jack, in addition to fighting at this hotel for the pleasure of these members was a shoeshiner at Augusta National and among the backers uh, of BoJack and the ones that got him a start in his career by paying from financially were Bobby Jones, the legendary amateur golfer, Bud Maytag of the Maytag washing machine uh, family, uh, Grantland Rice, the sports writer, and Clifford Roberts, naturally the uh, chairman of Augusta National.
2: Did backing then mean taking a percentage of his earnings as well? Hell yes. Yeah. Naturally. Probably worth pointing
1: out. So I found this Grantland Rice column from 1944 in which he does not mention having backed BoJack. What about ethics in boxing journalism, Stefan? There is this final paragraph in which he credits Bowman Milligan who not only like discovered Bojack but like was his manager, like brought him to New York. Is, he, it,
2: is it written in, in, in verse?
1: It is not written in verse. Um, but he credits Bowman Milligan essentially in a like racist way with being the brains of the operation. He writes I must give Bowman Milligan a quiet, honest, smart, able colored man, most of the credit BoJack, with all his gameness and his physical qualities, was largely physical, meaning that he was basically a guy who knew how to throw a punch. Just like peeling back the layers of the onion on Masters Racism, Stefan. Could just, it feels like a never-ending onion. Next year, we'll
2: do Martha Burke and the, uh, the Legacy of Women at Augusta.
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.